Hello, everybody, and welcome to Molly Movie Club. I'm Casey Muratori. I'm Anna Ripberg. And this week, we are discussing Taxi Driver, a classic romance story between a pimp played by Harvey Keitel and a prostitute played by Jodie Foster with a wonderful supporting performance by Robert De Niro. (laughs) That's the HBO description of the movie. I always try to think of what the HBO description is going to be because, or it's not HBO, that's, that's unfair. It's everyone. Anytime we go to one of these things on the streaming service, the capsule review is so far from how I would ever describe the movie. I, it sounds like it's written by someone who's never seen the movie, which may be true. <laughs> they like read the Wikipedia um, synopsis of the movie and yeah, then I guess. tried to write a, yeah. Anyway. Because that is basically like what, like that's what I said is a little far-fetched, but it's, I've seen things that are not far from that, where you're just like, how did you get that from Taxi Driver? <laughs> Well, anyway, Taxi Driver is the second movie in our Unlikable Protagonists series, and this is a very different film from Nightcrawler, which was our first one, although they share a a little bit in common in terms of the type of person they're trying to portray. Uh, I wouldn't say these two protagonists have all that much in common, but they do both sort of capture this idea of sort of a loner uh, who doesn't have you know, functional social skills, basically, who has some mental problems, actually, things like that. I feel like uh, the character in Taxi Driver is way more believable in a lot of ways. Yes. Because he's not, like, in Nightcrawler, he's a <clears throat> pure sociopath, almost to the point of, like, being a cartoon villain. Almost. Whereas in this one, this is ab- this is like a person... That you hear about in the news. That's right. Regularly, right? Like this is this is a school shooter. The I would say that Nightcrawler is kind of like a cautionary fairy tale feeling thing. Yes. Right. It's it's like you know, and this is the Wicked Witch, and this is Hansel and Gretel, and whatever. It it has that kind of feel it's to heightened, it, yeah. where it's not meant to feel like it literally happened. I mean, there isn't anything in Nightcrawler that couldn't literally have happened, but the feeling of the movie is not that it literally happened, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of more of a of a I don't know, archetypal is the wrong word, but more there's more caricature to it. Yes, there's more exaggeration to it. Yes, in terms of the feel of the movie, Taxi Driver feels like almost explanatory. It's like, hey, you know those people who sometimes assassinate political candidates? It's this guy. And after you watch the movie, you're like, yep, yep. I can believe that. Yep. I can believe that's literally the guy. It's really, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I necessarily love this film, but it is one of those films that I would say absolutely nails its subject matter. And I'm just like, yeah, I totally bought it. From no, start so to finish. I think comparing like this Nightcrawler and Taxi Driver, for me, uh, Taxi Driver is way more my kind of thing. Ah, yeah. I really like this movie. Like it lets things, it lets scenes kind of just play out. It shows a lot of sort of just observing, like observations of the people who are out and about at night and what they're doing, which is sort of what our main character is doing, right? Yes. Just watching. Um, and I think like the the big di- the big similarity between... Nightcrawler in this movie would be the both main characters are very like misanthropic like they don't like people 
But and they both have no social skills. Like they're they, unable to connect with people when they converse with people. It's very uncomfortable I, for the I audience. Would, I would say though they are they're unable to connect with people in different ways. Yes. In Nightcrawler, he's a sociopath. In Taxi Driver, he is. I would actually say he's quite a bit more sympathetic, especially early on, because he's awkward. Like he's he's obviously very socially awkward. He potentially has some PTSD because it's he was a war vet. Yeah. You know, he's a war vet in Vietnam. So I think like he's had a lot of things in his life happen to him, probably that have led him to the place he is now. Uh, at first, he's he just seems a little bit like aimless and lost, but he doesn't seem bad. And uh, I think the first the first scene where you really feel like okay, this guy it doesn't quite get interactions is like when he takes his date to the the porn movie. Yeah, there's sort of an innocence to it, actually, right? Like he just doesn't know that that's not what people are supposed to do. Yeah, it's not sinister at that point. It's innocent, right? And Nightcrawler, whereas Nightcrawler obviously feels very sinister, like the whole time. Well, the, yeah, like I said, in, in when we we're talking about Nightcrawler, the opening shot of that is him, like, yeah. assaulting, possibly killing. We don't even know a security guard and taking his watch. Like that's the opening right. shot, right? right. And and he did that while committing a crime. So mm-hmm. he was like stealing from the, yeah. the well, a construction and, and, and site this, or whatever. You know, and in this movie, you've got Robert De Niro. Who looks very, he's very, like, he's an attractive guy. Yep. He's He's got this puppy dog look about him. He's yep. got kind of shaggy hair. He's kind of scrawny. Like, he is, especially initially, his visual appearance is charming, right? Like, he seems kind of likable at first. He's also very polite. Like, when he goes for the job, mm-hmm. you know, he the first thing we see is, is him talking to the person at the taxi cab company. And he seems, you know, he, he's obviously, like, kind of a little slow on the uptake. Like, he doesn't know what moonlighting is, right? He doesn't have very fast answers to the questions. You can tell he's not, like, quite all there all the time. But he's very polite. And, you know, when the guy kind of – he says something a little off color. He says, like, uh, the, the the person running the taxi company asks how his driving record is. He says it's clean, just like my conscience. And the other guy says, like, if you're going to bust my balls, like, you know, get out of here. And he immediately apologizes, right? So he's – in general, at the outset, you're kind of just assuming like, OK, this is a guy who has some problems, but he's not really necessarily a bad person. You start to see a little bit more of the psychotic nature of his outlook on things, I think, a little earlier than what you're describing. Like, Yeah, and his, especially his internal monologue. His internal monologue, what he writes in his diary, like he doesn't quite write correctly. And then he starts talking about like the filth in the city in a very yes. abstract way. He's not concrete about what that but means. But I think in terms right? of his actual behaviors, I mean, yeah. I think it does start earlier than that when he's watch, you know, he's watching the woman, and that's creepy, right? Mm-hmm. That's like he's he's crossing a line yep. that he doesn't really know you're not supposed to be crossing. But at the same time, it's like balanced out with the fact that he's a little bit charming. Like when he goes in to actually yes meet her, it's riding that line. Yep. Uh, but he succeeds, right? Like he was yeah. just charming enough to be able to pull it off. Some of this stuff feels so real uh-huh. uh the way he acts when she kind of decides to yeah. not have contact with him anymore right yeah. is i'm assuming something many women and probably men too have experienced when when they you know say no to a an interested party right yeah it's very it feels very true it does and very scary and threatening i would say that the the movie also does the right amount of explaining for sort of the progression from that 
to assassinating the Senate, the senator, mm-hmm. presidential candidate senator, which is to say not much. And I think that's very good because it's not really something that has a logical explanation. Like there is no logical reason for this person to assassinate the senator. Mm-hmm. And so I think if they had tried to make that very concrete, it wouldn't have worked. But because they basically just kind of like, okay, he was interested in this girl at the campaign office. And then when that doesn't work out, he kind of projects a lot of things onto her, which apparently kind of spreads to the idea of the political candidate. And he kind of just goes down this, you know, spiral of like, I'm going to assassinate the person. It felt very plausible because it wasn't overexplained. It's just like they just showed it happen and they had enough in place that it felt very supported, but they didn't try to say it's like it's specifically because of X, which I think wouldn't have worked. Yeah, because I think it's obviously clear that he is not a political person. He, he, he has, he has no interest or knowledge in politics. So this assassination would not be a political assassination. Yeah. It's for his own like warped, weird logic. Right. That he's got in his head, which feels yeah super true because like there's no like logical reason that someone would shoot up a school or something. Right. Like that these kind of people will do what they're going to do, except in the case of maybe actually a political like a political assassination. Yeah. There's an actual like reason for that. But that's what I'm saying. Like, so if it was a political assassination of the kind that this person is specifically trying to assassinate a political figure for political reasons, that's one thing. But right. this is about a character who assassinates a political figure for no reason, which does happen in the real world. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like assass- the ass- political figure might be a bit of a stretch, but I'm thinking the assassination of like John Lennon, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. The You could be assassinating John Lennon for some specific political reason, but the actual assassination of John Lennon appears to have been done for no coherent reason. It, it just someone right. is kind of has a completely messed up worldview that we can't understand. Like right. somehow it led them to this conclusion, but like, it's like, I, what? Right. More to the point, this movie apparently ended up causing someone to try and assassinate Ronald Reagan because they claimed, I guess, I don't remember the details, but it was something like they, they, uh, they associated with Robert, they, they, they like felt some kind of connection to Robert De Niro in the sense that they wanted to get Jodie Foster's attention. This is, this right. is like a real thing yes. that happened. Yes, yes. And I don't remember the details of that assassination, but the, but when like the little that probably we know about what the person was really thinking sounded a lot like what happens in this movie. There's just weird connections happening. You went to see this film and it put this idea in your head and your brain just wasn't able to like properly contextualize mm-hmm. that because, you know, um, maybe you have some mental problems and eventually you end up trying to assassinate Ronald Reagan, which makes no sense, right? Yeah. Because it's like there's no reason why those two things would yep. be connected, but it just ends up there. Yeah, people's brains, some people's brains do that and this movie is is really great at showing yes that type of person and and i think you're right it's it doesn't over explain it it but it feels natural you're like i, I get i get that he's doing this it it, it doesn't have to have it does it couldn't possibly have a really logical explanation um other than that this guy is super misanthropic so he doesn't like people and obviously wouldn't have a problem killing you know he was in the war he was in vietnam presumably like he's killed people before possibly yeah 
Um, he has a big scar on his back that you does. see and when he's doing push-ups. Yeah. I don't know if that's related specifically to this. I'm assuming. But... I like details like that. <laughs> Me too. Because this movie has a lot of that where it never comes out and says basically anything. I like the um, the scene where toward the end he's writing a note to his family. Yeah. And uh, that's super interesting and super revealing about so many things about him and his relationship with his family and the kind of lies he's telling them. And yep. t- it's great. The movie does a great job of slowly sort of like revealing who this guy is. I uh, think that the writing in this movie is great. Uh, it's I don't know how much is writing and how much is directing or, you know, sort of improvisation in some cases. I don't know. I don't know the details of the film because like we usually try to talk about films without reading them. And I haven't read much about Taxi Driver, but I would say that all of that comes together in a really beautiful way. And it creates, you know, a much like I loved how Nightcrawler created this sort of, like I said, it almost feels like a fairy, uh, like a cautionary fairy tale, like you tell to scare children. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Nightcrawler feels like to me, yes, like yeah. like the Nightcrawler will get you. <laughs> yeah. okay? It feels like that. He, well, to me. He, he feels um, like a villain, like an actual a, a like kid's a, storybook villain. You know, like a Grimm's man. fairy tales. Mm-hmm. You know, the old ones that were violent and gruesome that you still like. I think of Nightcrawler almost in that vein. And this one is kind of the opposite thing. This is the one that's like tries to go super, you know, uh, true to life. And it's like we just want every scene to feel like like if you stepped out into New York City as a as like a uh, stepped out is probably the wrong term if I'm going to say fly on the wall. If you flew out into New York City as a fly and perched on the back of a taxi cab at 3 a.m. that this may actually be something you would see. And it's a really... Uh, unique picture in that way because I rarely get that feeling, and yes. it. So it, I think it's really great. All of those things come together, and obviously Robert De Niro is doing something great there too because it wouldn't work if he wasn't. So I feel like all of that is really great in this film, and I also I think the scene selection. So I say the writing as well. The scene selection is very smart. It has just the right number of things that are not related to the plot as things that are related to the plot, to give you the sense of New York City happening around you, mm-hmm. to give you a sense of the people that he is interacting with and who he's thinking of when he's thinking of things like the scum of the city and all these other things. And it creates this beautiful portrait of a city at a particular time. Mm-hmm. How true is that portrait? I have no idea because I wasn't there. But it feels as if it is true, and mm-hmm. that's the important part for a movie. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because I think you can you can understand how he was radicalized to feel like all people are scum because yes. he's always out at night, and he's yeah. seeing he's you know he's seeing often like some of the worst yes. behaviors of humanity. And he came from a war. So he's seen he came from seeing the worst of humanity, and now he's back at the worst part of New York City's mm-hmm. humanity, seeing that. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's 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 radicalizing, yeah. uh, which I think I think is understandable. You know, I, that's why I say I think he is he is sort of sympathetic. You can yeah. sort of feel bad for him because he ended up in this place not entirely of his own because of his own problems, but because of you know things that have happened in his life, presumably that have pushed him this way. But his brain is his brain, so it's like, well, you know. But you do get the sense. Unlike Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. you do get the sense that this is a character who could have led a reasonable yes, life absolutely. if someone had taken care of him. Like if, if there had been someone 
they're like a good friend of his or mm-hmm. something or a lover or a parent or something mm-hmm. who just had a slightly different relationship with him and could keep him from harming himself, yes. basically, that he could have gone a different way. Whereas when you look at Nightcrawler, like I said, it's the fairy tale. Fairytale. There's no sense of that. Like, like that character, uh, Lou, is, ne- is not redeemable. And the movie makes it tries to make it very clear to you that that's not what this is about. In this movie, it's very clear that there are a lot of sides to this character, and it feels like maybe he could have been helped. Yeah, like he could have been pulled out of of that spiral. I mean, he, he and he feels... sort of does at the end accidentally kind of get back to more of a stable state a little bit. So you know, it's showing that there's it's it's a more hopeful film. It's I, and I think it's a more human film. It's yeah. more complex. All the characters in it feel more real. Oh, and. One really great thing, just again to talk about, I don't know if it's writing or if they did improvisation for this, or I don't really know how they got some of these scenes, but there's a great scene where Robert De Niro talks to the wizard, and he basically just like says, can I talk to you for a minute? And they go outside, and, you know, that's the guy who's kind of been driving taxis for the longest time, Mm -hmm. and he says some stuff that doesn't make really much sense. Yeah, yeah. And Robert De Niro's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the guy's just like, I, I don't know, man, I'm just a taxi driver. I don't know. He's like, you'll be all right, right? And it feels so natural because it's like, yeah, it's like because this isn't supposed to be a movie where people are smarter than they are in reality. It's supposed to be a movie where people are as confused and helpless as they are in the real world. Mm-hmm. And this guy is just a taxi cab driver. He's not a poet, right? He's not going to have some brilliant line to tell you. And the movie is honest about that, right? It's yeah. just like, yeah, this is just like, look, man, this is what that conversation would probably be like mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. real world. Well, and and it's also, I love it, that. It's kind of sad, too, because it's like you can tell, like, Robert De, Niro, De Niro's character is seeking, he's seeking help. Like, he kind of knows he's messed up, right? He like, does. He can't sleep, right? Like he's yeah. he's obviously not in a good place and he just ends up falling further down into this like self-pitying place. I like this approach better than the Nightcrawler approach, I think. Just watching the two movies in a row, I'm like watching the Taxi Driver, it just feels like a a better experience for me, like this more well-rounded experience. Partly too cuz the filmmaking, I I really think this movie looks great. It, it absolutely looks fantastic. That is that is definitely true. Yeah. Um, it has some really beautiful shots in it, some really creative camera work. I mean, the, one of the most striking shots in it is that top down. They mm-hmm. obviously have taken the, the, the ceiling off of the set or yes. whatever of the room, right? Like after he's shot everybody. And so he's on the couch and she's crying or whatever. And it's like a, everything is kind of frozen, right? Like the cops are kind yep. of standing super still. And it kind of just sl- – the camera is up above them shooting down and it – Like floats it's over. Kind of yeah. a, it's, it's, pro- it's like that Hitchcock shot in Psycho, right? That top-down one. It's kind of reminiscent of that a little bit. Um, I mean it is and it isn't. Well, because, it, because I hate Hitchcock, I feel compelled to point out the fact that like – in this movie, there's a very good reason why that's happening emotionally. In the Hitchcock shot, the only reason that you're seeing it from top down is just because they didn't want to show you the fact that the grandmother is a skeleton. It's it's just purely because 
There, there's no other reason for it to be shot top down. It doesn't. The scene doesn't call for that. It's not I'm more saying, it's scary a, it or was, dramatic. It was a creative way to. It was a creative way to solve a problem, and and in doing so, it was a new shot. It was like a, a striking shot because it was unusual, right? That's all. I'm. I'm just saying. Like yeah. I think. But in the Martin Scorsese version, I guess is what I'm saying is it's that it's more skillfully in done. That one, it's like there's a very good reason for that shot. Emotionally, he is basically like dying at this point. He's going into a coma. And this gruesome scene has played out. And this is kind of like us being removed from the situation and just kind of like having this sort of slow realization of what has gone on. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like the character is kind of having at that point. It feels very coherent to me. Well, and also right? it, it lets you have this nice moment, too, where it's. Like almost as though it's like a police diagram, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what you're seeing is sort of the layout of this massacre. It's very memorable, right? Like that's it's a big standout in the movie, in a movie that looks fantastic and is well shot throughout. The movie looks gorgeous. It's it's absolutely beautiful to look at. Yeah. Um, I didn't think that was true of Nightcrawler, no, for example. No. It's not a movie. That, when it, you watch these two movies in a row, it even though I like Nightcrawler, Taxi Driver is kind of like on another level where you're like, okay, like I get why this movie is you know, was so famous, is still considered a kind of... Well, it's like much a, earlier, a too, right? So yeah. movies like, you know, Joker and Taxi Driver, I mean, and uh, Nightcrawler and those movies, uh, the, anything that came after it that tries to portray these characters has Taxi Driver to look to. Yes. I don't know that there was much for Taxi Driver to look to, right? Like, they were kind of going out on a limb here and doing something that really doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure no one was... I'm sure everyone was telling them, like, who's going to watch this movie? What are you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. Everyone's going to hate this guy, like, whatever. And it's like, no, no, like, we can make this work. So it is really remarkable in in all of those ways. While we're talking about camera shots, though, I didn't love all of the choices there, to be completely honest. I thought the movie looks fantastic. But early on in the movie, and I'm not sure what the point was of this, uh, they liked to do these 360-degree sw- swivel shots where they would basically go and rotate counter to the motion. So, like, there's a shot where a taxi car is driving into the taxi station depot. I don't mm-hmm. know what you call those. And it's driving basically, like, on the left side of the screen, and it's going to drive around the behind the camera, if we were to just continue facing it. It would drive behind the camera and loop around and come back forwards on the right side of the screen, because there's, like, a loop of, mm-hmm. row, of uh, ramp behind it. And normally, the camera would track the taxi and loop the same direction as the taxi. But what Scorsese does in this shot is he rotates the other way around so the taxi is going one way we flip the other way a good 200 degrees and it's very nauseating like i literally Hmm. get a little bit nauseous interesting when it happens and i'm not necessarily averse to that meaning if your goal was to make me feel very disoriented about this scene that might have been a good choice it really wasn't that kind of scene and the character wasn't really in that position at that point. I don't feel like so. It was, I don't want to second guess because it's Martin Scorsese and I'm sure he had a reason to do this. Uh, right. Like it's, I mean, the guy's a master filmmaker, so it probably wasn't like, I don't know, let's just spin the camera. Right. right yeah. So he probably had a very good reason, but I don't know. There's a couple of those. There was another 360 degree hmm. shot that happens in there. I just didn't understand because it really like it literally was kind of nauseating. And 
one of the things that happens there, though, is it maybe that it kind of was just like, I don't know, let's spin the camera. It'll be more interesting because I think I have trouble with shaky camera. Like yeah. Children of Men, remember, for yeah, example. Yeah. I remember we went to go see yeah. that and you you came out of the movie like pretty uh, nauseated. <laughs> exactly. So it may have been that Martin Scorsese was just like, I don't know, let's spin the camera. That'll be more interesting here. Not because they probably don't have that you know, nausea. Funny, like, they, they probably don't go, ugh, when they happens. Well, no, because, like, to, uh, to be honest, I don't even remember those there shots. To me, I felt like there was creativity in in the entire movie in, in the directing. Like, Yes, I think was, it's he good, was, yeah. It feels like to me that Scorsese was at, like, a creative prime when he made this. I mean, I think he's in the movie. He looks, like, super young. I think we we looked it up and he was, like, in his, he's, like, 33 or 34 when he made this movie. Yeah. I think it was, like, he was he was trying some stuff and and it was it was i think it worked really well it's definitely the best film of him his i've ever seen i haven't seen all of his films but i've seen a good four or five of them and taxi driver is actually the only one in that to me is is really interesting i just in general i find that scorsese films are always good like they're very watchable Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, whatever, you know, they're they're watchable and they're well-made and they are never trite. Like they're not oh yeah, it's it's Avengers or whatever garbage. It's always like a thing that's on the screen that you could watch, right? But I've never really seen one like Taxi Driver. It it kind of I think in a way not only may it have been a high point for his career in terms of maybe he was just really in the zone at that point but I think it's also the perfect subject matter for the way he shoots films mm-hmm. because in a way he tends to tackle subject matter that almost isn't that great for how he shoots films he he likes to do these like things with lots of characters that happen over long periods of time and in some ways, the like slice of life naturalness that he can do just doesn't matter for that kind of film. But when you take something like Taxi Driver, where it's one guy and a couple interactions and a really scary city, it's like it's the perfect thing for him. Yeah. And he did do one other movie like this called Bringing Out the Dead, and it wasn't nearly as good. But uh, for whatever reason... Taxi Driver seems to me like like a real outlier. It's like he crushed this film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much creativity in like like it really feels like an artist's picture in in a in sort of the old-fashioned way where I don't feel that much anymore where you can feel that the filmmaker is trying stuff and being bold and I really felt like that worked so well in this film. So as you can tell, like I'm saying a lot of really nice things about this movie. So you may be asking, like, why isn't this one of my favorites? Yeah. Why? Right? Why, Casey? Why? In fact, I like Nightcrawler better. Really? Yes, I do. Because um, Nightcrawler is like one of my – would be in my top ten almost certainly. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, not, Tax Driver probably wouldn't be. And honestly, there is one very specific reason. Okay. One very specific reason. In fact, I could take this film – and edit the soundtrack, and I would end up probably with this being in my top ten. Oh, so it's the soundtrack. The music to this movie is so bad that it actually makes some of the scenes unwatchable to me. And Mm. here's why. There is literally one, I don't know, one minute, maybe 30 second saxophone 
part mm-hmm. that they kick in at full volume in like every other scene. <laughs> it is so it gets to the point where it feels like a Seinfeld episode where whenever a scene ends, it goes like it is. I can't say enough bad things about this music, this music. And I feel bad saying that because apparently my understanding is Bernard Herrmann literally died like moments after finishing this score. He like finished the score and the next day he was dead. So I apologize for criticizing someone who literally died making this film. But I hate this music. Hmm. And if you had just made the music more varied and more subtle, I think it changes the whole movie for me. Because I cannot tell you, it's literally like eight or nine critical scenes that are ruined by that stinger. So I don't totally agree. I I actually don't mind, for the vast majority of the movie, I don't mind the music. I don't mind the saxophone. I feel like it... It feels right for the movie to me. It, 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 the tone of it, it feels like gritty and New Yorky, and like it feels right. There's, there is one moment with the music though that bugged me okay. and took me out of it, and it did happen at a critical moment. It okay. was, it was right at the end after he. I can't remember the exact moment that the music hit cue hits, but it's like when the police are coming in or whatever. Right after he shot everybody. I can't remember exactly when, but during that scene, there's a music cue that hits that comes across as really dated and hokey. Yes. Sort of in the way that Hitchcock movies can feel. Yeah. Uh, there was one moment like that where it, it felt silly, and I didn't love that because the, the scene was not silly. And I, um, was, I was basically having that experience like 12 times in this film. I mean, I can imagine if you were having that experience, that would, that would suck a lot. Because I, I didn't have that problem except for that one moment. Literally, if you just removed the music, that alone might be enough thankfully though for a lot of the movie there was no music like that i think you're overestimating well the entire like so the entire uh massacre kind of scene is set to like silence and it works so well Uh, a lot of most of the rest of the movie has saxophone when he's driving around connecting every scene Mm -hmm. every scene ends with saxophone and plays into the next scene and it's not new saxophone it's the same exact cut every time Mm -hmm. i mean i do think it it maybe makes the movie feel a little more dated because i mean it is bernard herman he's the one who scored all the hitchcock movies right like it's yeah it has a little bit of that older hollywood kind of vibe to it where the music wasn't as tightly sort of scored to like what's happening and and to me it feels almost like completely disconnected it's just like there's music that's playing that has no relationship to the scene. And I know that because we have two or three scenes back to back with completely different context and the same exact music plays in each of them. So, yeah, I can't say enough bad things about the music to this movie. To me, it doesn't ruin the movie, but the only reason it doesn't ruin the movie is because the movie's so damn good. Mm -hmm. If this were any other movie, it would have completely ruined it. And it does knock this movie out of my top slots Literally, I think just on the music because hmm. I, I can't even know. I know that it's horrible and I know that it's affecting me badly when I'm watching the film. 
I can't know how much I would have liked this movie without it. it I may have like absolutely loved it. Like it, it really could be that that big of a deal. Anyway, that's, but that's all I have to say about the music. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was not bothered as much by it, but I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's also, I think, one of the reasons that it stands out so much is because maybe this movie should feel more dated than it does, but because it's such a good film, it doesn't, right? It doesn't feel dated at all. It feels like... Mm-hmm perfectly coherent in all the other ways and i would also say too some of the grittiness you get from Mm -hmm. the fact that it's older the fact that it's shot on film even though it's restored obviously it's not restored to be like pristine Mm -hmm. but that is not a problem right it it gives this it it gives the movie this grittiness that feels just right like it's a dark movie it's a dirty movie it's new york at at one of its darkest grittiest points and so the the sort of texture of film it's so good in, in, in a movie like this. It, it adds so much to the feeling of it. And I think the music is an outlier there, right? Like it's it's something that totally is like, what is this from? Because it feels like Taxi Driver is a completely modern film, even though it isn't maybe all that modern. It's like it, it was like it just it, it's timeless, maybe is the way to say it. And the music doesn't feel that way. The music feels completely out of some other era which that uh, of movies I don't want to watch. Right. Yeah, so. which I mean, it kind of is. I mean, which I think, yeah, Bernard it Herm- probably is. So. so, oh well. Yeah. I, I and uh, but yeah, so that 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 I think is really why this mm-hmm. movie receives lower marks from me because if I think about any other aspect of the movie, I have nothing but positive things to say. I, I had a question, and I don't know if the movie club knows or anybody knows. You know how it's like a trope now that in any sort of movie where a character is buying like an illegal gun. The guy comes into the suitcases and puts them on the bed. Did this movie, like, make that a thing, or was that a thing before this movie? You know, I had the same exact thought when they did that scene. I was wondering. Is this the reason, like, every movie now, it's like, throw the the suitcases on the bed and pick out your guns in the hotel room? Is like, I don't know. It seems like this movie might have started that. I can believe that, but I don't know. That's a very good question, and I I had the same thought, because I was like, is this the first let's lay out the guns on the bed scene? In the hotel room, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't know. I would like to know. Yeah. There's some things like that that you just kind of want to know, right? Well, and obviously, since Taxi Driver was so influential and remains to this day an extremely influential movie, it makes me wonder, right? Uh, I also noticed sort of like, I'm not going to say similarity, but there was a certain, because they're not really that similar. But if you look at Apocalypse Now uh-huh. and you look at this film, they both kind of have these interesting like characters sort of having mental breakdowns mm-hmm. of different kinds in their sort of grimy room. <laughs> in in you know, in the case of Apocalypse Now, it's in a hotel room, you know, in in Vietnam, I guess is where he was when he was having can't remember where he was specifically, but I think they flew to Vietnam first and he had in the hotel room there, but I can't the remember. The shot with the, the scene with the fan with the, the famous shot like Well in the mirror he breaks the, the mirror. mirror. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh and and that and then in this one you have all these great shots in the hotel room and of course the famous one where he's like, Are you talking to me? Because mm-hmm. there's no one else here. Which is amazing, by the way. That that scene deserves the fame that it has mm-hmm. because it actually like if you watch the whole scene, it's way more complicated than just that line. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. got all this really interesting stuff that's happening there. And Robert De Niro is doing some amazing stuff. Like, you know, one of those performances that you're just like, Oh, that's brilliant. Cause somehow I'm watching this guy do basically nothing for a minute. 
right? But he's going through kind of all of these like facial expressions and like body posture things that totally keeps you involved and Mm -hmm. makes you like totally connect with the character and like what weird thoughts are going through their head and all this stuff, right? Well, that's why at the beginning of the podcast, I said that I like the patience of this movie. Like I love movies in general that have that feeling Mm -hmm. where we're just going to let the camera watch for a while and observe. And this movie does it so well. On the subject of, well, you know what? Let me say one thing about that in response to that, too, which is that I don't like movies that are, I bring up Roma often when I'm thinking (laughs) of movies that I don't like that have that uh, sort of characteristic. So I would also draw a distinction, though, that this movie does take as much time as is necessary to show you what's going on somewhere, but only as much time as is necessary. And that, I think, is the big dividing line for me. It is not a self-indulgent movie. Every shot goes on only as long as it actually has to. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between that and movies that just film a room for 30 extra seconds, even though nothing is going on that you need to see. And so I really do think that I would draw a hard line between those two things because I do think Taxi Driver, it has the patience to show what is necessary, mm-hmm. but it is never self-indulgent. And I think no. that's very important. But I think I, I guess I'm just saying that more in comparison to a mm-hmm. lot of the editing and directing styles you see that are common today. Absolutely. Lot, very fast paced, fast cuts. Yes. And uh, I like movies that have the space to like breathe. I couldn't agree more. And this movie, I think, as you just said, hits the sweet spot of that where it's not boring. It, you're never bored. You're never like disengaging mentally because the scene is just losing your interest it, it never gets that way uh but it's it takes the time the time to like show lots of shots of the place that you're in it's showing the you know it, it's showing it from the perspective of a, of a cab driver who's going to be seeing all these little glimpses of, of scenes happening uh and, and he's obviously observing he he watches everything right like he i think he even says when he's uh like when he's talking to the Secret Service guy, right? He's like, "I'm very observant," right? And he he's, does. he is like, I think I think we are seeing throughout the movie the world that he's seeing. You know, he's watching all of this happen, and so are we. And I, I just like that. So there's another interesting thing about this movie that, since I think we've wrapped up that part, I'll I'll broach sure. another subject. I don't necessarily know if this was intentional. It may well have been intentional, or it may have just been accidental, and I don't know. Like we said on Nightcrawler as well, when you're doing enough things right, you can start just having accidents that you didn't intend that work for you because the audience now contextualizes them in this bigger picture that you set up. And so even things you didn't intend can reinforce qualities in the movie and make it stronger. Totally by accident, which is great. It's like this bonus you get for doing a good job on everything else. One thing that I think this movie does that's easy to overlook, but which is totally cool, in my opinion, is if you imagined that he had assassinated the senator. And like he said, he'd be dead. I think he wrote in his thing. I mean, he might not be dead, but he would be in jail Mm -hmm. anyway. The cops would search his apartment. Like That's what would happen next, Mm -hmm. right? In fact, he leaves the note with the money for Iris Mm -hmm. there because he assumes that someone will come and search his apartment, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is that all of the things that happen in that apartment also set up what would be the kind of crazy apartment that you would find if you went 
to the person who assassinated yes. the senator. Yeah. There's burned flowers in the sink. There's a television that has just been like kicked over and like knocked on the floor. Mm-hmm. There's drawers that he has taken the sliding things off of to make the little gun mm-hmm. holsters, right? And I just like this idea of the they they went through all these things to set up kind of like what this weird you know almost crime scene would be like because whenever they do go like what did they find at the apartment right, right? and yeah, it's yeah, weird yeah. stuff it's like well here it is it'd be really crazy if that was there and i kind of really liked that aspect too we see those things we don't need to see him burning those flowers right mm-hmm. um but the fact that we do i think made it feel really like organic and and really immersive that it's like, oh, these are the things that are going on at his home, right? Uh, which made perfect sense to me. Yeah. And so I really enjoyed all of that detail as well while we're talking about like details things. Mm-hmm. Some of it obviously is plot related. Oh, how does he make the little thing that you know holds the gun? But a lot of the rest of it is not. It's just there to show what it's like at his home and what his home looks like now. I felt like that was well, I mean, really like, good. There's literally that whole scene where he's watching the TV and it ultimately like kicks it over or whatever. Yeah. It's like we don't need to see that scene. It doesn't exactly. do anything for the plot. Right. In fact, it goes on a while, right? He's watching it and like slowly tipping it. And it's like, <laughs> I love those scenes. Me too. And I like what you can imagine, too, because you can think about what's going through the character's head while he's watching that mm-hmm. television program, yes. right? Yeah. And it gives you space to consider, right, what the characters are doing and what they're thinking at that time. Mm-hmm. And this is why I say, like, I think it's, you know, it's the difference between a movie like this and a movie like Romo that I don't like is that they're not just showing a scene because they're being self-indulgent and they wanted to show Robert De Niro watching television, they're showing that scene and giving the audience a very specific context and focusing their attention on something important so that you will think you will use your brain to think about what Robert De Niro is thinking about right now. Right, There's a reason his, for it. He's doing a lot in that scene, even yes. though he's just sitting there watching TV. Everything, his body language, his actions, his facial expressions, like the, everything is telling you about this guy. Yes. So I don't know. I don't have a lot more to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't either. I, there's a lot of shots in this movie. There's a lot of the filmmaking that I just really love. Like even like right before the credits start at the end when he's looking in the rearview mirror and then it does this like quick, he almost like flicks out of view. It's just like it's unsettling and creepy <laughs> and like it. it's just great. There's there's just so much visually going on that I think is so good. I totally agree. Yeah. I, totally and I, I really like I really like this movie. I, I think I'm kind of a sucker for movies from like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. A lot of the the good good movies from that those two decades like hit hit the sweet spot for me and this I would say this one does. I mean I I don't think I'd watch it all the time cuz it is you know, it's like heavy. It is. It's yeah. pretty intense. So it's not like a movie you're going to watch all the time. But it's great. It's a classic for a reason. I feel bad in a way not talking about anyone else. I mean, you know, we we're not, we haven't really talked about Jodie Foster, Harvey Keitel, Sybil Shepherd, or Albert Brooks. Everybody in this movie disappears into the movie. Like, they are just the characters that they are. They do, but I guess what I would say is, <clears throat> unfortunately, at least for me, while everyone's doing a great job, uh, and I don't remember the name of the guy who plays the wizard, also did a great job. Um, it, it, everyone's great. 
and everyone does a fantastic job and it works for this movie. Unfortunately, it's just like it really just is watching Robert De Niro. That's what this movie ends mm-hmm. up being. Mm-hmm. And while any one of those people giving a bad performance surely would have detracted from the movie, at the end of the day, it really just doesn't matter that much. It's like the the movie focuses on Robert De Niro so much and he does what he needs to do so well mm-hmm. that it's like yeah i mean everyone was good i don't have any complaints but it was never really about that mm-hmm. it just never was i never was like oh well thank god harvey keitel did this in the scene or or that wouldn't have worked or, well, or jodie honest- foster was great she was and she was very young at the time but it's like it never really was about that for me it I really guess, wasn't but I, what i will say is i think they all disappear into the environment in the best way possible in that they mm-hmm. feel like real people. Because you just mentioned, with yeah. both of those characters you just mentioned, so the pimp guy, yeah. the way he talks, he's got, he's like always wiping the corners of his yeah. mouth with like a, with like a napkin. He's just got, it's just, it's yeah. a weird thing yeah. that a, a real person would do. Yeah. And then with like Jodie Foster's character, when they're in the diner and like the way she's like yeah. putting jam on the thing and then like crunching the sandwich together and eating it, like those little details feel... Like make these people feel like people. Yes, they're doing like they're doing what a like a it's kind of a quirky weird thing. But because like everybody has those weird yes. quirky things, and in something as simple as sitting at a diner and talking, they've found ways to like put the you know make the people feel human. It's just like immersive, I guess. And there's always stuff to watch too. There's like always stuff for your eyes to be uh, looking at. I guess that's the that's what's it called like the business. Oh yeah. But it's like there's always, you know, there's a conversation happening in the scene, which is the most important thing, like the thing you're listening to. But there's always something for you to be looking at. Like there's always these little details, yes. things that like the, the, the characters are fidgeting or they're doing stuff. It's sort of like you almost don't notice it, but it's really important because it keeps you really locked on to, the, to watching the scene. Yeah, there's never a scene in this where people are just standing and talking to each other like stiffly, right? There's always a context then it, and it feels like a New York context. They're sitting there. Yeah. There's someone bringing food over. They're walking out. They're leaning against the taxi cab. They're you know going, mm-hmm. walking down the street, or people are passing them in the street while they're talking, and they notice that you know there's, it, again, I assume this is just great directing. Yes. I assume this is just what yeah. Martin Scorsese does, and it's yeah. why he's you know so great is yes. because like when he puts together a scene, it feels like a real place. Yes, and when other people put together a scene, it doesn't, and that's. You know, that's his thing and it just works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they get the people talking over each other and they get the all, you know, all that stuff in every scene. It just works. Yep. You know, uh, it, right down to things that actually take a, a while to probably set up. I mean, there's the scene when Robert De Niro comes in to talk to Sybil Shepherd, uh, Betsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Travis goes in to talk to Betsy. And I don't remember Albert Brooks's character's name, but... There's a great deal of choreography in this scene. Mm-hmm. Someone is coming in to talk. The other person, you know, Albert Brooks obviously doesn't want someone talking to the person he's obviously interested in. And, of course, Sybil Shepherd is looking mm-hmm. up at Robert, trying to decide what to make of him. Albert Brooks goes, goes back, kind of gives a backwards glance, goes behind a pillar to where his desk is, and periodically looks back out during the mm-hmm. conversation at specific times. Right? There's... There's a tremendous amount of choreography. And meanwhile, there's people all around the office walking around, doing through the desk. And it's, it's, you know, it's easy to just forget that 
all of that stuff someone had to do. Like yes, someone yes. had to figure out where all those people were going to be, you know, made sure that because it would be easy for it to look cluttered or wrong or to focus your attention in the wrong place yeah, yeah. or to not have Albert, you know, poke his head out at the right time or not have the right looks from each person. And so when you look at a scene like that and it comes off so smoothly, again, I think to what you said before, it's like, it makes it disappear. It makes it feel like the filmmaker's not doing anything special, but actually it's remarkably special. But it also makes it feel like you're just like watching the real world. It's just documentary all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there, I, there were moments throughout the movie of crowd scenes that I noticed that sort of thing. Like there's a, the one where, um, where Jodie Foster gets into the cab the first time yeah. and then is pulled back out and then he's watching them kind of walk away and there's like a tons of people walking on the sidewalk and he's kind of the, the pimp guy's like pulling her closer yeah. and she's trying to get away. And like, you know, all of these scenes of people moving and, and then obviously when at the end when it's like the crime scene, like the police cars and the, the people on the street and there's like there's just so much motion and movement and choreography. I feel like uh, Scorsese's good at that. I mean, he does that a lot in his other movies, too. I feel like like Wolf of Wall Street was one, you know, I think of immediately where it's like large groups of people like. Yes. I think he's very good at that. He seems to have just the natural talent for it. Or maybe it was practice. I don't know. Whatever well, it was, he, yeah. he already in Taxi Driver obviously has it down because mm-hmm. it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. There's never a scene that feels small or like it's only taking Mm -mm. place in a set it always feels large it feels like it's taking place in a city with everyone doing exactly what they do in a city in a way that a lot of movies nowadays don't a lot of movies that you see nowadays maybe because they have to use digital backlot and shoot on green screens or whatever it is that they're doing or maybe just because you know scorsese is just a master of this and it's somewhat of a lost art at this point they don't feel that way. Yeah. They don't. So when you look at those scenes in movies, they feel small. They feel like something that's taking place more on a stage than it is in the context that it's actually supposed to be taking place in. And this movie is obviously just the perfect example of the opposite of that, where everything – you never for a minute remember that this is a movie set. Ever. You're never like, oh, yeah, they set up this little office and all of those people are actors, right? It's like, no, like, not at all. You just, you're like, yeah, they just, obviously they had a campaign office that they filmed in or something. It's like, well, no, like, those people aren't real campaign staffers. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe that's the trick. Maybe he goes and finds an actual campaign office. I I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like, it's like all of that stuff. And to your point, that crime scene, when when the cops cars show up, as it's pulling back, you can see there are some prostitutes who come to try and get back to yes, the thing. Yes, yes, and yes. they're like, the cop comes up and stops them, right? It's like all those little details, it just it makes it feel real because you're like, yeah, that's what would be going on. People are trying to go about their life and all of a sudden there's this crime scene. He gets it all right. Yes. It's all there. Yeah. You know, it's like every little minute detail has been has been put into the painting. Yep. I it's it's just a great film. It's yep. a great film. Great so, film. Hate the music. <laughs> yeah, music is probably the weakest part. Doesn't bother me as much as you, but I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. So, is that it? I think that's it. All right. Well, I think next week is going to be There Will Be Blood, which so, I have never seen. This is going to be challenging because I try. I like Paul Thomas Anderson. There are several Paul Thomas Anderson films that I like. I tried to watch this film and could only make it 30 minutes in. Oh, no. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. So I will try again. Well, you have to watch the whole thing now. And if I can't make it all the way through the film, then next week my discussion will be about how I couldn't make it. 
worth of thirty minutes. Wow, of this film. I'm very now. I'm I'm very curious. We'll see. I well, just couldn't knowing it's it's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. It's at least going to be good to look at, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why I had that reaction to it. Maybe I just wasn't really in the mood, and this time I'll take it in better. But you know, Paul Thomas Anderson definitely shoots movies that. Well, not all the time. I mean, there's movies like Punch Drunk Love or something that's more to the point. But he definitely shoots movies that are fairly diffuse, um, like Phantom Thread, like Boogie like Nights. Like Phantom Thread. Boogie Nights as well. Um, the Master. Maybe less Magnolia. The Master, definitely. This movie, for some reason, was just too diffuse. It was like there was so little going on that I just couldn't. Hmm. Um, and so we'll see. Maybe I'll be more attentive this time and pick up more things that are going on and, and I won't have that reaction or maybe I'll just suffer through it. But I will say this one's going to be really challenging for me because I was not able to finish the film All when right. I tried to watch it. Well, I'm very excited to see what happens. Yep. So we will see you back here next week. Yes, we will. Find out if Casey could sit through. <laughs> Can there he make it blood. through? There will be blood. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye.